greetings from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. This show's been created to bring to light the need for a centralized culture in the African-American community and to show how many of the struggles in the black community are rooted in the lack of a centralized African-based culture in the black race as it exists in Western civilization and the Western Hemisphere. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Clarence Jones, and I'll be your host today. And I'm going to use my show uh, for making a case for using the fall holiday of Kwanzaa as a platform for the many different kinds of black people to gather around. And uh, I'm going to take Kwanzaa. I think we should take Kwanzaa and change it from a once-a-year holiday and turn it into a year-round system uh, that would do a better job of unifying black people. And so I think it's a perfect platform for that. And so uh, a legitimate question, of course, is why Kwanzaa? Why did I choose Kwanzaa? And what, you know, what, what does that serve uh, as opposed to other systems? And Kwanzaa has been chosen because it's African. It is of Africa, but not specific to a particular tribe in Africa. So this is uh, something that makes Kwanzaa inclusive to all black people. Uh, Kwanzaa is a first fruits harvest celebration that does not infringe upon religion, nationality, geography, or ethnicity. And I feel like the African peoples need an ancestry-based system that all black people can rally around. That's been our problem throughout our history. Uh, this would lead to better camaraderie, familiarity, uh, which would lead to continuity, and then more camaraderie, which would lead to an enhanced ability to organize, orchestrate, and coordinate as one effective group. Now, all of these processes together, not one, all of them together, are what is called unity. It's just a word that people throw out there, but people don't necessarily understand what unity means, and it's important. It is about executing. It's about coordination. It's about communication. All these things are factors in unity. And so, and unity has been a key ingredient that's been lacking in the black population and has been at the root cause of many of its struggles and challenges. It's, uh, it's, it's, in, it's hampered its ability to deal with adversity, its struggles, and its enemies as one force. And so I'm going to use my show uh, to, to make a case, again, uh, for the need for a centralized culture in the black population and for the practicality of using Kwanzaa as that cultural platform. I'm going to cite history, my personal life as a pro athlete, former pro athlete, current events and books I've read um, to, as illustrations uh, to show that need for a central culture in the black population. And so if, we're, if I'm talking about culture and how important it is, I guess the most important question we got to get here today is what is culture? What does it do? Why is it so important to ethnic groups and races uh, throughout countries and throughout history? And so that, and that's obviously a fair question. And culture is a playbook, a ethnic playbook, a religious playbook that's used by ethnic groups that allows it, it well, it's actually used by everything. Culture is, sports teams have a culture. The New England, New England Patriots have a culture that's distinctive to the New England Patriots. 
The Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan had a culture that was distinctive to the Chicago Bulls uh, when Michael Jordan was there. Magic Johnson had a specific culture with the 80 Lakers that was distinctive to the Lakers while he was there. Now LeBron uh, has his culture. He's at the head, but it is a culture that everyone adheres to. It's not just one person. It's the whole organization uh, going by these principles and going by these values, and the culture helps them achieve goals, which, of course, in a sports team is winning. In a, in a corporation, it's about making profit and dominating and, and taking a market. But for an ethnic group, it could be developing land. It could be conquest. It could be creating an economy for itself. All these things uh, go into what culture is. And, of course, culture is a coming together of shared values, beliefs, education, customs, entrepreneurship. Uh, culture is centered around symbols and artifacts that everyone adheres to. I remember when I was in high school, part of our culture was our our insignia was on our weight room floor, and everyone knew not to step on that insignia. And a lot of football programs around the country had that same mentality. That's an aspect of the culture. Uh, the whatever your signature in your your insignia is is um, something that everyone kind of kind of signify. You know, it's something that everyone. Uh, it symbolizes your culture, it symbolizes your people, and everyone, they may not worship it, but it, uh, they all are, they don't worship it, but they, they, they kind of, I guess it is a kind of a worship. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but uh, they definitely idolize it, and they, they, they definitely use it as a symbol of who they are and their and their culture and their organization and their race. So the New England Patriots insignia, you know, their symbol are the Patriots. You know, um, everyone has something uh, as some type of trademark or something that you know signifies their culture or signifies what the, who they are and what they stand for. And so that's part of it. Uh, the thing that's different about culture from other systems. And again, culture can be utilized in corporations and, and companies. Um, a corporate song, a company song, a team song, a school alma mater song. All those are aspects of culture, and they're artifacts of culture. They're symbols of culture. Um, culture is a learned thing. Culture, if it is not learned, uh, then it is not culture, meaning you're not born and you know the rules of your race or your ethnic group. It is taught to you by those before you, your parents, your grandparents, your aunts and uncles, the people around you, and that is that signifies the community. But it's a greater community which makes that culture. And the thing about culture, it has no boundaries. Uh, culture is timeless. So... The thing that you're doing now in 2021, relative to a culture, your ancestors were probably doing 200 years ago. If that's what you're doing, that is definitely part of a culture for an ethnic group. And so these are critical components of survival, that if you're lacking, uh, messes with your ability to survive, it messes with your ability to prosper. 
It messes with your ability to even defend yourself. It messes with your ability to educate yourself because this thing is a playbook that um, has been tasked, passed down from generations to generations. It is culture is a connecting point for a race's ancestral rituals, uh, success procedures. Now, what do they mean by success procedures? Success procedures mean uh, if they have a way of raising children that's helped and it's been successful, obviously they're going to pass that down. If they have a, a way of raising children or, or mentoring young men that has not been successful, they're probably not going to pass it down. So by the time it gets to you, you know, 200 years later, that's something that they've been successful with. They've been successful in rearing children. They've been successful in teaching young men to be men. They've been successful with teaching young women to be uh, head of the household uh, as far as, you know, doing laundry and doing whatever uh, females do or the women of that race and culture does. Now, it, 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 that's a great point because maybe that in that culture, and in particular culture, the women do the same thing the men do. That's possible, too. So it's all culture figures that out. And then, of course, culture sometimes is changed or augmented uh, to meet modern times. And so now, we, you know, 200, 300 years ago, it was expected and thought that, you know, women couldn't do the same things men could do. We now live in a different reality. So your culture may adjust to that. It may teach young women, well, if, if, one, if women can be lawyers and doctors, then we need to be making sure they take math and sciences too, just like everybody else. Maybe 200 years ago, that wasn't even important. And actually, women, girls did not actually go to school in many uh, parts of the, of the globe. So all of those things go into culture. Um, culture is a connecting point for groups as far as rituals, birth, death, celebrate, how, how to love one another, how to respect one another, how to take care of the old. All these things are part of culture. Culture is oh, another aspect of culture and why culture is very important is uh, culture is there's a lot of strategic planning that comes together for an ethnic group or race revolving around culture. A race, it's hard for a race to acquire economic power uh, without a culture, a central culture, because there's trust factors involved in commerce. When you do business with someone, and uh, hopefully, and we will get into this as we go along further, apparently the Bank of America was created by an Italian immigrant. And Bank of America that we have, that we have now in 2021, uh, Giant Bank was not the Bank of America, in fact, the, like the Bank of Italy. But the, the owner and creator and CEO of the Bank of America was an Italian that did business with immigrant Italians that migrated to the West Coast of California. And there were a lot of longshoremen and people that did business in the uh, harbors and on the coastline, fishermen and, and uh, fish markets and what have you. He was an Italian that knew Italian culture. So there were certain aspects of 
the Italian family that he had insights into that he knew would make investing in them in the form of loans a good thing. He could tell by the hand um, that an Italian man, he, this guy was a worker, okay, because he knew how what they did and the uh, the types of jobs they did. He knew that they tended to stick together. They did not divorce too much. Uh, they, you know, they were one steady unit that uh, family was very important. So an investment with them, regardless of what they look like as far as their wealth and their appearance, this guy knew that based on knowing the culture, being an Italian. That's when it became Bank of America and you know, became one of the most successful banks America's ever produced. So this is part of the economics of culture and the importance of that as far as strategic planning. Uh, culture helps in the acquisitions of business for the ethnic groups. It helps in that process because you have a familiarity with the people you're doing business with. Uh, it helps uh, in obtaining, again, obtaining real estate. Education is important. And it, it's part of that process. Uh, education uh, is a, if your culture encourages you to do a lot of reading and writing, if your culture encourages you to be into the math sciences, as there are specific ethnic groups that tend to, to be into that, uh, they tend to gravitate towards that. That leads you towards what? High-paying jobs. You know, there are racist ethnic groups, and we're going to get into them, uh, that doctors and lawyers are heavily, you know, from particular ethnic groups. Asians um, that come here are heavily into the math sciences. And so the engineers, the doctors, the project managers even, that's something that uh, they gravitate toward. And so that's part of culture. Culture can do that. Um, it, it transports the history of the race and the identity culture is very important for that. Uh, now, what that's important when you talk about the black community and our lacking of self-knowledge is an important aspect uh, that's been a problem for us. You know, knowing your history is a way of knowing your own greatness. If you do not know your own greatness, how can you have any expectations for yourself and your race and your community. That's a challenge. Culture is a major uh, transporter of history, knowledge, and folklore. And so not, not being connected to that is definitely uh, something that's going to be a, a mark against you. That's definitely going to be an impediment. It is, it is the economic, social, political, spiritual rallying point for, for one race. All the elements of civilization are gravitate towards the culture, everything. So when you're disconnected from that, you're disconnected from your civilization building um, capabilities. And it basically, culture is a template utilized by a race that uh, without it, 
it has no ability to operate effectively as one unit. You're basically, I don't care if you're a hundred thousand or ten million. If you have no culture, you're just ten million individuals, and that means anybody can do so, anything to you. There's very little you can do uh, to to prevent that because you do not have a community. You have no communication system. You have no warning system. Culture does all of that. You have no, you have no, you have no system of teaching self-defense, teaching how to protect um, uh, particular areas. You have no system of, of teaching who to protect. You know, women and children, um, priorities. Culture does all of that, and so that is why culture is a critical component of all civilization, but particularly ethnic groups and those lacking a connection to culture are, are really behind the eight ball. And, and not having a centralized culture definitely hampers your ability to, do, to really do anything. And so when we, we, we got into culture, and I like that we talked a little bit about culture somewhat, uh, now the next question now, who has what people have been helped by culture and why? Since I'm saying that culture has, uh, the lack of a centralized culture has hurt the black community, who has it helped? And so right off the bat, that's as many uh, people uh, have been helped by centralized culture. I would take uh, the Jewish community, uh, even the Protestant community, uh, Calvinists uh, have, have, have benefited they're definitely the Asian communities. Uh, they're definitely uh, communities that you can see a pattern in them with the unity and where they gravitate. Even the Mormons in Utah uh, have been very effective in, uh, in business and creating their own ecosystems to which they uh, protect. Mormons were discriminated against when they first came to the United States, and uh, that's what made them go into go to Utah, Utah in the first place. And so Utah uh, has become their home and they've, but uh, they've had a lot of success, not just in Utah, they, you know, very prolific business people, uh, the, the Mormons have been. And I think uh, culture has played a, a part in that. Their central culture has clearly played a part in that. So uh, if we talk about, a, a, there are several people that uh, culture, central culture, have have uh, has helped, but today I want to talk about the Jewish culture and how that's helped them. Um, first, let's talk about uh, from I read a book a couple of years ago about the Jewish effect and the Jewish um, uh, the the Jewish. It was a book talking about how culture has help Jews uh, be prolific in different areas of society. Apparently, uh, a disproportionate number of Jews are on the boards of Fortune 500 companies, own Fortune 500 companies, and work in Fortune 500 companies. A disproportionate number of Jews uh, go to Ivy League schools and graduate from Ivy League schools. A disproportionate number of Jews are doctors and lawyers, of course. 
And that's not even talking about when we when we look at entertainers over the years, singers, writers, comedians, directors, um, and and movie moguls that are in fact Jewish. And so the I think the book was called The Jewish Effect. Uh, I definitely have to look it up. But uh, it talked about how culture kind of gears Jewish kids toward that. And um, and their belief systems and, and how that helps them uh, and, and kind of moves them towards uh, being successful and getting high-paid jobs uh, once they uh, graduate high school. And the, the facts are, and it's interesting because there are, there are communities that house poor communities in New York, excuse me, that house Jewish people, house Italian people, and house Irish people. And they're working class or poor communities. So it's not, uh, uh, you know, it's not high-end communities with high-end schools. In these communities, these same communities, working class communities, even when their parents were not doctors and lawyers, Uh, these communities that house Italians, Irish, and Jews, of those communities, the Jewish kids tended to go to college at a much higher rate out of the same community, uh, going to the same schools. Uh, they graduated at a much higher rate, rate. Excuse me. They went to college at a much higher rate. They became doctors and lawyers and, and dentists at a much higher rate than anyone in the exact same community. So when, we, when we're talking about that, we're talking about culture and the, the value system instilled in them uh, by their parents and by the culture. And so, and now we have to look at Jewish culture. When we, when we ask that question, when we look at that, we now need to look at Jewish culture. What is it about Jewish culture that kind of, orients young people, their young people, towards that. Well, first of all, they do a lot of reading in the Jewish culture. They do a lot of debating in Jewish culture. They have to do a lot of speaking uh, amongst each other about their religious texts, their historic texts, and all these things have oriented their children towards thinking uh, writing and reading. And then when we look at Jews historically, we also have to look at uh, their historic relationship with other ethnic groups. Okay, so now we have, we've already established these are people that read, these are people that are very talented, these are people that have been oriented towards being doctors and lawyers. Uh, we also have to go back hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, of understanding Jewish people relative to other white people, other people uh, in Europe, where they were, and how were they, you know, how has that affected their, you know, their journey as a race? And one thing you'll find is Jewish people are very strong with culture 
and definitely not interested in changing their culture. And so they were not uh, easily assimilated. They did not like to change at all, uh, whereas other ethnic groups would come in in Europe and uh, and kind of take on the customs of the whatever European country they were in. could be France, Germany, um, Vienna, uh, wherever, uh, you know, Italy, wherever they were in Europe, be it country or city, uh, they tended to not, most people assimilated and took, and took on the culture of, you know, wherever they were, Jewish people never did that. And so they definitely, they definitely were resistant to, um, assuming anyone's culture. And so they were very stubborn and disciplined with that. They would not change their culture for anyone. This made people distrustful of them. And since they would not assimilate, and then they were good with wealth creation, they became, uh, people became threatened by them. And so I, re- I remember reading in uh, a documentary that talked about Jewish people and how the kings utilized them as far as tax collectors. So you have the king in feudal times, he had to collect his taxes and he had to send out people to do that. And so what he did was he utilized Jews that tended to not assimilate with other people, meaning he could send them out and he knew they would not get with the peasants and get with the other people, get with his subjects at his expense, meaning the Jews would, were not, they were not like the people they were working with. So the chances of them working with the peasants against the king was not that high. Uh, you know, he could basically trust them more than anyone else. And this created an interesting dynamic that still exists in Eastern Europe to this day, a, a distinct, harsh distrust of Jews existed and, and began from the feudal times. And so, and it manifested itself in anti-Semitism and just hatred of Jews, mistrust of Jews, and laws against Jews that were hundreds of, hundreds of years ago. And so these laws, I, I think it was, it was against the law to marry a Jew if you were not Jew. It was against the law for them to own property. And I think they were not allowed to vote. And um, so all of these constraints were put on them. And of course, they still had a strong cultural ties to one another. And what ended up happening, and of course, they migrated all over the place, was created a natural diaspora for them that they utilized as an economic diaspora. This is a critical point. As an African-American, I have to ask the question, who do we as African-Americans do business with in our diaspora? How does it feed us? How does it sustain us? 
we pretty much are in other people's diaspora. The Jewish people, um, and this is interesting because people don't understand why the Jewish um, uh, uh, Secret Service, which is called the Mossad, is so effective. It is considered, pound for pound, the best uh, secret service um, in the world other than the CIA. And I'll put it up there with the with the Russians. But in general, the the Mossad is considered one of the best secret police in the world. But people don't realize that Jewish people have migrated all over the world and tend to be alienated from all of the places in which they reside. This makes them perfect targets for the Mossad uh, and the Israeli Secret Service to network with. And it's it's a natural network that exists because basically because of anti-Semitism. Um, but that network is utilized in you know in political situations and security situations. But the economic diaspora that exists uh, in the Jewish uh, community has existed for hundreds of years, and it's allowed them to be middlemen. That's allowed them to create their own economy. So now we go back to feudal times with Jewish people. We have people discriminated against. You can't own land, can't marry. I don't even think they could vote. Um, what they did, they became the middlemen. And so if you were shipping things out, uh, the diamond industry, they're big in that to, to this day in South Africa, uh, to New York. But, but in finance, I think real estate, anything in commodities, anything's being shipped, anything being shipped, uh, definitely Jews got into that and gravitated towards Lords of London, which was the insurance um, uh, company that insured the slave trade, unfortunately, but insured the, the, um, the colonization of the New World. Uh, were were the Rothschilds and 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 that was I think those were owned by Jews. So they were the middlemen in economy, even when they were discriminated against. So that is having a network of your own people. That's having a strong culture allowed them to do this. And uh, and another interesting note to that was the fact that they became prolific financiers in the Middle Ages, in the feudal times. But again, they were still resented by the people and still distrusted. Basically, the king set it up so he only he was the only one that had a good relationship with them. So at times, they became a political liability to the king, and at times they were an asset. So they would get uh, ousted from from so they would help create an economy with help being experts at financing. They would then get uh, expelled from countries like Spain and France. Then they would, the countries would get in economic peril again, and they would have to call back the Jews because the Jews were very good with finance. And so, these are a lot of the struggles that they had to overcome, which they did. They were able to overcome. And um, 
even in the in the spite of restrictions, even in the spite of anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, they were able to overcome that. A tremendous uh, apparatus to that, of course, was their culture and their diaspora and their economics, um, economy that they had, and the fact that they were wealth created. There's no way around that, and uh, so a that mistrust. And that lack of of uh, assimilation, breeding uh, distrust in the peasant class of Eastern Europe, and so what it, what happened uh, were basically lynchings and riots where Jews were sought out and killed, and they called those pogrom pogroms in I think Ukraine, Russia, Eastern Europe, uh, the the Baltic states pogroms were common. And so where people would just, you know, almost if, uh, well, for for us, it would be the Tulsa, Oklahoma in the early 19th century, that riot in which it was basically ethnic cleansing. Unfortunately, they call, they call when black people get killed, when poor people get killed, they call those riots. They weren't really riots. It was basically ethnic cleansing that the black people would tend to not be armed. The white people were armed, so they just went around shooting us. And so pogroms are similar to that. That was in Eastern Europe, and it happened, you know, for you know hundreds of years. Really, I think, possibly, you know, feudal times to now. And so the final solution was essentially an offshoot of that. It wasn't connected directly, but the idea of people gathering non-Jews coming together and their resentment or jealousy. Um, rounding up Jews and lynching and killing them, um, burning down their houses, has been a part of Eastern Europe, uh, European history. And so this is, the Jews had to overcome all of this, which they did, and uh, part of that was their culture. And so I think the Jews are, are one example, a major example, how culture has been a, a major instrument, a major platform that has helped uh, an ethnic group succeed or survive. And it, it not only did it help them prosper, it helped them to survive. And so that's a, a, a critical aspect. So when I'm coming here talking about the need for a centralized culture in the black community, we now have to get into, okay, if the black community lacks a centralized culture, and that lack of a centralized culture is one of the major reasons why it struggled, or for many of its struggles, uh, not all of them. What are the examples of those uh, of those lack of that lack of culture, uh, of that lack of a centralized culture, and how that's hurt them? And so, the first thing we have to look at is, well, how did we get here? and how a lack of culture was part of that. We got here as Africans, the Europeans, let's go back, I guess we have to go back to the 1600s, 1500s. Uh, Europe just came out of the Middle Ages. Uh, they were, the most dominant entity was the Roman Empire for, dec for centuries prior to that. Once Rome broke apart, Europe fell into, I wouldn't say decay or disarray. Well, it was decentralized. It was no longer 
the place of education, power, was really the Middle East and Africa. But the the fall of the Roman Empire ushered in what is called the Middle Ages and the feudal feudal you know feudal times in Europe. And so they had the Black Plague, and Europe was just not a big dog anymore. And so it was a lot of poverty and a lot of people starving. And so we had, uh, Europe had a Renaissance period and they began to start to, they wanted to do trade and they wanted to do trade internationally. They figured out that there was a new land in the West. And so they wanted that land, uh, you know, that they had to sail to, to start to colonize create wealth, and bring it back to Europe to make themselves rich. So they go to the New World uh, with their explorers, uh, ousting the existing natives, making agreements with them, breaking those agreements uh, so that they could get the land, but they had a problem with the land. First of all, their diseases basically killed the, the natives. And so that you had a problem with that, and the natives whenever they wanted to run, could run, and they knew the land better than the Europeans who were colonizing this new world. And uh, that they had, you know, got into their ships and sailed to. So this was a big undertaking uh, in order to colonize. You have to have, you know, ships, sailors, and settlers that agreed to go. Uh, that's where we get the Lords of London, insuring these ships and insuring these enterprises. And so they did this, and they needed a labor force. They realized that, you know, this is a, a business action that requires labor. The Indian labor was not necessarily able to or willing to do it, so they needed labor from other places. And so they had black indentured servants, and someone realized that Africa might be a good place to. Um, you know, to do this and go into this direction. And interesting, in a book from Thomas Sewell, the, uh, he, he actually emphasized the fact that there was actually slavery in parts of Europe at this time, but also Europe was starting to nationalize. So there, when, when we talk about a place nationalizing, so you, you're the English, and parts of Egypt, uh, not Egypt, parts of Greece and, Ita and Italy have poor people, uh, peasants that might that may make uh, that might make good slaves. The problem they had was once they become nationalized, once they became a nation, taking those slaves is an attack on those nations. So it wasn't efficient to try to get poor people from Europe at this time. I'm not aware of that. Uh, I just read this in a book two years ago from Thomas Sewell about slavery. And uh, so I, I thought slavery was basically just, you know, uh, in Africa and in Asia. And I did not know that there were, I knew that there were peasants in Europe, but they were actually slaves at some point too. But of course the Romans made slaves, over, you know, once they conquered you. But apparently in the 1600s, around the time, that Europe was trying to get into the colony business, there was actually forms of slavery in parts of Europe, 
but they were still part of they were part of nations. So again, taking someone out of there uh, was an attack on that nation. That nation would respond. On the continent of Africa, that really did not exist, and so the Europeans had an opportunity and that everything was so tribalized. It was not homogenous. It was a mono situation where there were many tribes and bunches of different tribes. And so, and I'll get into that uh, in, in a recent class within the last 20 years with a native African that kind of blew my mind. But now I want to talk about, again, being completely decentralized and tribalized and the impact that had on Africa and the impact that had on the creation of Western civilization and the new colonies and future powerful nations. So the, the colonizers, the imperial, aspiring imperial nations of England, France, Spain, Portugal, um, um, the Dutch, these are all former poor people. Okay? Europe was basically a trailer park. You know, it was the middle, it was the middle, coming out of the Middle Ages, everyone's starving. No one, um, they could have been invaded, but they didn't have anything anyone wanted. Uh, during this period, the Ottoman Empire was really dominant all across Europe, as well as Gen Genghis Khan. Uh, so they're coming out of this, and they're looking, like anybody would be, they're looking to create wealth. They're looking to create their own system in which they're successful and dominant. They need labor. They have this country, countries and colonies that they've been able to get control of through military force and lying and, and the, uh, the biological warfare of their diseases impact on the Indians, the native um, people. You, it's not just the Indians because you really talk about the Aztecs in Central and South America and the, uh, and the other, the Incas, the other dominant ethnic groups down there that, in fact, were not Indians. Um, I guess you would call them uh, native Hispanic or Latin, but you know, they were, this was before Spain, so they're just native people, so I guess they are Indians, but these people were, were greatly affected by just the germs brought over by the Europeans, and so that undermined their stability culturally as well as anything. So They've gotten control of the land, but they don't have the labor. Africa has labor. It's decentralized. And unfortunately for the Africans, slavery was actually a custom that already existed in Africa long before the European. It wasn't the same type of slavery that the Europeans uh, implemented. And, uh, you know, the dehumanizing, uh, brutal, violent form of slavery that uh, the Europeans implemented on the African, but slavery, in fact, existed in Africa long before the Europeans. So it just made it easier for them to utilize it. And uh, it dealt with uh, debts owed. And, and, and also, if you were a slave in Africa, I don't, you, your children were not slaves. So that was something you had and you had to deal with. And um, 
that was uh, that's how slavery was then. Your children were not slaves. You had a debt. You had to pay that debt, and that was that. So uh, the Europeanized slavery of America obviously was something of a different thing. It was a then they call it the peculiar institution. Okay, so the Europeans, we have the African, West African coast decentralized. An attack on one is not an attack on everyone else. Uh, and slavery is, is something that existed before they got there, so it was something that they could utilize. The Europeans began trading with the African chiefs. And unfortunately, uh, in a book, another book uh, named Black, Black, uh, White Wealth, Black Labor, it talked about the, and the, and unfortunately, the Africans had no concept of, of profit and they had no real concept of value. So what they ended up doing, they would trade the Europeans for slaves that they had conquered in wars. They got into a dispute with a neighbor, and they would then have these slaves. And the Europeans said, "Okay, I'll give you. You have see, you have slaves." He said, "Yes, I have slaves." To the chief, and the uh, the European traders would say, "We'll give you these trinkets, these beads, or liquor, or whatever, whatever it was." They were giving. It's not like they were trading slaves for gold. They were trading them for for trinkets, and the the African chiefs would literally give them people that the Europeans would take, sell to the colonists, uh, the colonists in the New World who would use to work the land. So this is a serious uh, wealth transfer, and you're talking about millions of people, and you're talking about giving them nothing. It's not like they were giving them oil or gold or, or jewels for the slaves. They were literally giving them trinkets uh, for the slaves uh, with nothing and, you know, nothing and getting a human being that could work 10, 20 years. You didn't have to feed it that much. You had to feed it, but you didn't have to really take care of it. Uh, and then at certain points in, uh, I know, South America and South Carolina, that they didn't even worry about if you live because they could just bring someone else in. So the average slave lifespan in certain areas was not even a year, a couple of months. You would die and they put somebody else in. So they literally they barely had to feed And you're working this land, building wealth for the colonists who are then sending that wealth back to Egypt, to Europe. And so that compounded things. Uh, for uh, the Africans, because then the chiefs began to purposely start wars with their neighbors in order to get slaves to sell to the European traders. And so now the European traders are going all up and down the coast of West Africa trading for slaves. So here you have the problem of First of all, the, the Europeans had a problem. Where do you get the slaves? Where do you get the Africans? Would the coastal Africans help you to get other coastal Africans? Probably not. More, more than likely, they use Africans uh, to do slave hunts. If they weren't wars to get slaves, they would have slave hunts. 
they would have to go deep in Africa to get uh, areas, so they would need African guides to show them if they were going to go hunt uh, slaves. And and so you have the the participation of the African in essentially his own subjugation in the form of creating colonial empires with the Europeans uh, because the Europeans took that slave labor and created their empires. It created their colonies. Their colonies paid them and made them colonial powers. England, France, Spain, you know, um, Portugal, the Dutch. And so they were slave traders. And so this is what made them powerful nations with powerful navies and powerful militaries, all from the labor um, acquired from Africans, helping them to acquire this with very little in exchange. And so this is part of the history, but this is, this is a problem with having no central culture. This is the problem with not being one people, being many people. And one thing I'll never forget in my life is uh, the iconic series about slavery called Roots that I think it was 1979. Wow, that's so long ago. (laughs) I'm an old man. Uh, I was in elementary school and Roots came out. And Roots was huge. Nothing like that had ever been done. And it was just an amazing, uh, and and it was amazing and it was just talking about slave history. That wasn't even talking about black history. That was talking about our slave history, which is actually very small. Our history is far deeper and bigger and more robust than our slave history here in the United States of America. Us as black people, as far as what we did in Africa for thousands upon thousands of years, is far more prolific and interesting than our struggles as slaves. But you know, here in America, that's uh, clearly an issue or clearly a critical point as we are in America, you know, so that makes sense. But we should know more than just we were slaves. And um, that's, matter of fact, that's one of our problems. And as I disconnect from our greatness, which disconnects us from our expectations. So anyway, in the miniseries Roots, that the male lead was Kunta Kente, played by LeVar Burton. Great actor, played in Star Trek and all those other things. And um, when he first was captured in the original Roots, I know there's another one that's been done recently, which was good too, but I like the original better, with LeVar Burton. They show him when he is caught by the slave traders. And they saw they show him struggling. They have this powerful scene of him being um, put in slave chains, and him realizing that he is in chain and he's trapped and he's caught, and he's not going to go home. And he starts flailing away. Very powerful scene. Starts flailing away, flailing away, and they did it in slow motion of him just realizing that he is in someone else's control. And I guess anyone's human nature would do this. You know, human nature would, would make you start saying, oh, you know, get me out of this and move in 
and jumping and just trying to break the chains, which, of course, is not really possible. He's surrounded by the slave catchers. The thing that I, I saw, even as a nine-year-old, was that it was only one white guy. And I guess they were marveling at his fight in him to be free and to be liberated as he clearly was in chains. But there were three or four black Africans around him, or black men. They may not even have been Africans because they were dressed in European clothes. But they were surrounding him. He was surrounded, and they were laughing or smiling at him, struggling to be free. And so as a kid, I was like, wow, the black dudes are helping the white people enslave the black man. And so that is absolutely the the history of the slave trade that black people have to come to grips with. And if you come to grips with that, you have to come to grips with a major part aspect of that is the lack of culture and the lack of a centralized culture as blacks help whites to enslave other blacks. Uh, I was in a class. uh, I, I played professional football for 10 years and didn't graduate foolishly and had to go back to school in the off season to take classes at the University of Maryland. And I remember being in a class with a native African, he was from Liberia. And uh, I remember apologizing to him once I found out the history of Liberia. Liberia had a lot of African-Americans going there to liberate or colonize it basically. And what, ended up happening is the African, the African-Americans tried to install themselves as white people, basically discriminating against the native Africans in Liberia. The Liberians rose up and overthrew the native Americans, the, not the native Americans, but the African-Americans settlers, and I guess threw them out. So I told him, he, he, I asked him about it. He said, yeah, that's what happened. I said, man, let me apologize that we were that stupid to, again, not work with other black people, and in this instance, try to act like we were white. He said, don't worry about it, man. It's, you know, it's over. You know, we're liberated. And, you know, nice guy. It was great talking to him. Um, the interesting thing about him, and I, something made me want to ask him a question, and I forgot his name. Well, let's say his name is Ron. And I said, Ron, tell me something. And And I said, I know that Africans very tribalized, and I know that each village in in Africa has its own witch, basically witch doctors, but it has its own language, it has its own religion, it has its own customs. You know, it's essentially a nation within itself as far as a actual tribe in Africa, and we have thousands of them. And they again they have their own rituals they have their own culture they have their own language so you could be living up the street and and there's a tribe up there and they could have a different language custom everything from you uh value system and everything so i asked her i said ron tell me this and again well that wasn't his name but i don't remember we're going to use ron as an example ron let me ask you a question we're in Africa, and you are at 
your tribe is here. And there's another tribe five miles away or a mile away. You can see them, but they're a different tribe. And I asked him, I said, Ron, tell me, do you consider that another race of people? And he said, absolutely. And it was just, um, that was amazing. That was an awe-inspiring moment because he just answered the question, this is why slavery existed in the first place. So if there were 12 different tribes in a 20-mile area, those are 12 different ethnic groups in that area. Well, and if they don't see themselves as one nation, it's easy for anyone to attack all 12 of them, you know, simultaneously, one, that, one, one by one, or pay one to attack the other. You know, so that was a revelation for me to actually hear it in 19, I think it was like 19, well, it wasn't 19, it was 2000. Well, it could have been 19 because I, you know, I, I hadn't finished playing yet. So um, I think my son was born. So it might have been 1998 or something. But to realize that hundreds of years after the slave um, industry, that this is the reality that it was built on. It was built on the reality of disunity of black people. It was built on the reality of tribalism in the black race and ethnic group or the many ethnic groups and that was utilized strategically by the Europeans. And then to and then to top that off by let's say the slave industry started in in the eighteen uh sixteen hundreds. By the eighteen hundreds the European nations had become powerful nations. And they just came with black labor and came and took over Africa and split it up amongst them by 1890 or something. So 200 years, they literally gave the Europeans the labor that built their wealth that enabled them to basically essentially colonize and annex Africa directly to all Europeans. So now they didn't even have to take slaves out of Africa and to their colonies. They just used Africa, African states, and African nations as their direct colonies. And so uh, this is the history of how a lack of culture has helped, has hurt uh, the black community, African-Americans, and in a historic, and in, 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 um, been a, a part of our history in a negative way, and has helped other people to subdue and conquer us. And so uh, I hope that is, uh, I wanted a, a little taste of getting into history. Uh, I hope that uh, was, uh, I hope that made my case for the need for a centralized culture in the uh, African-American communi- community. I think that Kwanzaa is that missing link economically, politically, socially, that could help the black uh, community move forward. And so thank you for your time. Again, I'm your host, Clarence Jones. I've enjoyed my time with you guys this week and uh, hope to talk to you again. Thank you.